Hello and welcome to the Build-A-Bard Workshop. My name is Stephen. And my name is Simon. We're not experts, but we're here to take you through building a character in Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. We have a list of rules that we work from when building a character which are as follows. We each build a level 5 character using a random race, class and subclass and see what we come up with. The goal is not necessarily to build the most efficient character, but to build an interesting one. We use standard array, standard racial bonuses, and characters start with 100 gold and an uncommon or rare magic item. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said I'm going to start doing intros. You can if you want. Yeah. It doesn't sound like something we do. No, but I'm also trying to talk more from the diaphragm. Yeah, no, I've I've realised um, my throat is absolutely knackered and I sound terrible on most episodes. Oh no, it's nothing to do with that. It's because I worked out I sound really nasally. So if I speak more from the diaphragm, a bit more Barry White and uh, a little less yeah. Kenneth Williams. That's fair. That's Today fair. we mm-hmm. are discussing how to construct a character. Yes. I suppose is the broad thing. How you can build a bard, yes. if you'd like. <laughs> In a workshop. Yeah, if you like doing that sort of thing. And if you don't like doing that sort of thing, I, I have questions about why you're listening. Well, maybe they are DMs. <laughs> who, uh, they want, might be, uh, yeah. who, who want NPC inspiration. Yeah, they could be. There is that. So, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to wait for D&D Beyond to update. No, I'm going to go to gameplay. I'm going to go to create a new character. There's an idea. So we can just go through the screen that it pops up yeah well I I think I don't know if it was last week or the week before there was one of the people that I follow on Twitter was saying that they sometimes just build D&D characters because it's it for them it's relaxing going through the math and working everything out and yeah we mentioned that on the podcast the other week and I thought about that some more and I realised that is relaxing when you are not doing it for a show no I guess that's true (laughs) so looking at the first thing before you even make a character, when you're going to your DM, mm-hmm. and I usually have some questions, so I will ask, are you using optional class features, mm-hmm. and are you using the ability to customise your origin? So I suppose to explain those, optional class features, throughout D&D's history, there have always been clarifications of rules. And at some point, mostly during Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, which is the third book I would buy as a player so if you're a player you want the player's handbook yeah and you probably want Xanathar's Guide to Everything and then Tasha's this is one thing that I feel should be clarified because I think a lot of people misunderstand this a lot of people look at Dungeons and Dragons and think to get into Dungeons and Dragons and play it you need you need the three core books like you used to in like back in third edition Mm. There's a lot of people that still think you need the DM's guide, you need the player's handbook, you need the monster manual. Right now, you can play Dungeons & Dragons for free. If you download D&D Beyond, and again, we are not sponsored. I would love a sponsorship by them because then maybe we could afford things. But we don't Two have... microphones. Yeah. <laughs> God, you could listen to us in stereo. It'd be amazing. Yeah. Ping-ponging back and forth. Yeah, but right now, if you download D&D Beyond, you get a basic set of the rules. You get the rules for, I think, fighter, wizard, rogue. Uh, you get a couple of basic classes I'm built pretty sure it. that if you download the basic rules, you actually get one subclass for every class. Yeah, you get enough rules where you can choose a class. I don't think you can choose a subclass. No. But you can choose a couple of different races 
a couple of different classes. You get, I think there's, only, like Steve said, there's only one subclass per class. Mm. But it also includes all the basic rules for how you need to play if you want to actually play it with books. In the UK, it's, a, it's 16 quid. I'm not sure how much it is in the US, but there is a starter set you can get, which gives you a basic adventure to run through, a small pamphlet that has enough of the rules you need to know. So people who look at it and think, oh, it's it costs you 60 quid to get into because you need to buy this, this and this. In theory, you can play Dungeons and Dragons for free if everybody has the D&D Beyond app. That yep. tells you everything you need to know. If you want more classes and you want more of a clarification of the rules then you can do that with just the player's handbook if you want to be a dm and you want to be a good dm and to be able to improvise things then you get the dm's guide and if you want a lot of monsters to work with out of the gate you buy the monster manual or you buy mm -hmm. volos or what's the other morden canaan's tome of foes gnome of toes yeah yeah gnome of toes you buy that and that will give you a bunch of extra things so to bring it back around to what steve was saying about tasha's being possibly the third book to buy if you have just the basic rules mm -hmm. on dnd beyond and then you think i want more subclasses to play with the next move after that is to buy the player handbook because that's got a lot of extra classes and subclasses in Unless you want to play a ranger, then the next book you want to buy is Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Yeah. Because the PhD Cauldron of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and Xanathar's... Guide to Everything. Guide to Everything are best seen as two bolt-on packs mm. because they will give you a lot of extra subclasses and they will give you a lot of extra options for the subclasses that you get. So when we talk about Tasha's optional rules or any of the... I think Xanathar's has some that are built in yeah. to D&D Beyond as well. When we talk about those rules, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the extra things that have been added and Xanathar's particularly fixes Ranger because Ranger was kind of accused of being a very broken and weak class. Actually, both fix it. So, Xanathar's fixed, quote-unquote, the ranger by implementing three really good subclass... Correction. Two really good subclasses, only which one of which anyone takes, and a third which is supposed to be the Witcher but nobody likes, right? Tasha's puts in a load of optional features that allow you to change how your ranger works and we'll talk about those when we get to that section later on mm -hmm. but it's always worth asking your dm before you start are we using optional rules so that if you have access to those optional rules you can build your character accordingly in tasha's cauldron of everything they did in fact codify specifically that you can always move your ability scores around for your race and as we go on, we see newer versions of uh, revisions, I should say, of Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition moving towards your plus two and your plus one is part of your character building and that racial bonuses are not really included in... Um, they're not part of the race, I suppose, anymore. They're more yeah. of a... Yeah. The idea behind that being there's this idea that a half-orc is naturally stronger or has spent their entire life being a barbarian walking around a village made out of sticks. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, one of the things they've been looking at doing is separating the race from the upbringing. So a fantastic example of this is Dimension 20's Fantasy High. Zakoyama's character in Dimension 20 of Gorgug who is a half-orc raised by gnomes. So in terms of the, the language that he's got, mm. he has 
gnomish. Uh, it might be gnomes or it might be halflings. He was raised by gnomes, so he has things like when he, he first goes to the high school, there's somebody else who's been given bad advice to basically treat it like prison and to just walk up to the first per the biggest person they see and just punch them in the face to prove dominance. And unfortunately, that's him. So they just hit him and he just like collapses to the ground. He's like, why? And then he starts <laughs> singing the song that his parents have taught him to make himself happy every time he's sad. That's brilliant. So again, yeah, you have this character who is, you know, technically he is a half orc, but because he was adopted by, I'm pretty sure it's gnomes. Um, because he was adopted by a smaller race that has like a different upbringing he has a different outlook on the world he doesn't have what you would consider a half-orc upbringing mm. which without getting into the sort of racial essentialism from my point of view in terms of building an interesting character if you have a dwarf who is just Scottish, Scottish accent drunk all the time and things like that that's it's not that interesting if you have That's bloody a, good fun to do the voice though if you have a dwarf who is just a dwarf then yeah that fills out the background if you're in a dwarven city but if you want to create a character who is interesting they've really got to be doing something different and uh you know uh, i've sort of half spoken about this before but the planet of hats is a meme no correction it is a trope and a trope and a meme are this close to being the same thing but it is a trope whereby Everyone in Star Wars, you get a lot of this. Like, everyone on this planet likes this. Oh, monocultures. Yeah, yeah monocultures, right. And we're kind of moving away from that model of everything. You know, the interesting thing about Lord of the Rings is that even though Bilbo Baggins was raised as a hobbit and wanted to sit in his hobbit hole, he then went out on an, advent and went out on an adventure and yeah. had, a, had a grand old time. <clears throat> he's interesting because he's strange amongst the hobbits. So, you know, that's part of building a character. One of the other things that you um, you have is that you might want to also ask your DM whether they're using optional rules. So this would be things like feats, multiclassing, etc. There are lots and lots of optional rules and homebrew, which is um, when the DM is implementing something that they feel makes the game more fun or more interesting. There will always be that, but it's always worth finding out before you <coughs> do any of that. Because again, you could build a character and you could think, I'm going to be really clever and I'm going to build a character that is amazing, assuming that I have another fighter with me to do flanking. But flanking is technically an optional rule. Your DM mm -hmm. might say, you know, if you have two melee characters and the DM sitting there thinking, well, they're just going to have advantage every single combat, mm -hmm. they might decide we're going to streamline combat and we're not going to use flanking rules. Absolutely. Your DM absolutely has the right to do that if they decide to. Especially when it's an optional rule. Yeah. Oh, since this is a beginner's guide, flanking is when you're stood on one side of an enemy, an ally is stood on the other side of it, so you get advantage on trying to hit that enemy if they're surrounded. Mm. We would then move on to choosing a race. When I'm creating a character for myself... Sometimes the race and class sort of chase each other's tails a little bit. Yeah. So I start out thinking, I want to play an elf bounty hunter, which is what I always want to play. But then I might go, well, what kind of bounty hunter do I want to be? Am I chasing after giants? And then I might decide, well, they've been chasing giants for a long time. Maybe they know giant. Maybe they are a half giant. Da -da -da -da. And that might change the character as we go along. To look at it from, from the opposite view... 
which is weird that you're talking about the character view and I'm about to talk about mechanics. Yeah. There's a character that I was trying to build a while ago, which was a character that can use a rapier in one hand and a hand crossbow in the other. Mm. Now, there's certain feats that you need for that. One of the races is the, the version of Eladrin that appears in the Dungeon Master's Guide has proficiency in hand crossbows. Mm. So you might look at a race in terms of, ah, this race already has this proficiency or it already has this inbuilt trait, which means I don't need to take that as a spell or I don't need to take that as a feat or whatever. Absolutely. Also, when I said you may chase each other's tail, I might go, okay, well, I want an elf and I want to make them a ranger when I pick my class. And then I think, actually, I do want them to have a crossbow or similar. And maybe that class doesn't get that weapon or maybe doesn't have a spell I want. And I want to lean into a specific mechanical thing. So I might then look for ways to acquire that mechanical thing and still make it have the flavour that I want it to have. Yeah. So thinking about race, do you have any preferred racial choices? This is uh, always interesting to me. The default for me, mm. and we heard this last week when we rolled a variant human, the default for me is variant human because you start with a feat. Now, again, in the description of variant human, it does say to check with your DM no. to see if they're allowing that as a variation of the human start. Because I think technically the normal starting human class is plus, plus one, one to all, all skills or plus something. one or to all ability scores yeah so it's rather than giving you a feat it gives you that little bump to every to every stat which can be useful or if you take the variant version of human you start off with you can select a feat at level one now we build characters for level five which means at level four you get an ability score increase which you can either increase one skill by plus two, or two skills by plus one. I knew that you'd know it. You can either do that to increase your ability scores, which is why it's known as an ASI, or if you choose to and your DM allows it, you can take a feat. So where we build characters for level five, it's not so important to have that feat at level one, but I think most people would be starting a character at either level one, level two, or level three. Yeah, I started two. Yeah, so if you're starting at levels one to three you don't hit level four you don't get that asi you don't get the feat so the only way to get a feat at level one is to take variant human and then you've got that starting feat and it means you can add a lot of flexibility to your character which mm. is the fluff idea about humans is in a lot of D, D settings they're the most prolific race and the most in, variable yeah they're the most prolific in most settings and because of that they'll have the widest varieties of backgrounds and and things like that so it's kind of to reflect that but again what wizards of the coast have been trying to move towards is an idea where other races can be more variable if you want them to now as part of the challenge that we've agreed on the best way that you put it was the way you came up the other week of we take the new version of the race but we take the legacy version of the stats because otherwise you would just go okay i'm rolling a wizard i'm putting my plus two in and i think we'll go into core stats a little bit yeah, when yeah, we yeah. go into classes so let's not confuse yeah. that for the moment let us talk about when you get an asi so every class 
gets an ASI at 4th, 8th, 12th, 16th and 19th level. And you can put plus 2 into one score or plus 1 into any two scores. In Dungeons & Dragons, boosting an ability score boosts how good you are at doing the thing with that ability. One of the things that has made D&D 5e so accessible and so streamlined is that your scores range from 0 to 20 and a score of 10 or 11 is completely neutral. There is mm. no minuses to it, there's no pluses to it. 0 to 1 is minus 5, 2 to 3 is minus 4, 4 to 5 is minus 3, 6 to 7 is minus 2, and 8 to 9 is minus 1. Then 10 11, neutral, 12, 13, a plus 1, 14, 15, plus 2, 16, 17, plus 3, 18, 19, plus 4, and 20 is plus 5. So this means that when you roll a dice, it is telling you, broadly, divide by 2, round down, that's how much you're adding to your dice roll. But instead of making you do that, it just really simplifies it to, this is your modifier. Which you used to have to do a lot of calculations like that in second edition. There used to be this old table called Thaco, which was to hit armor class zero, which most character sheets had a table along the bottom of it so that you, every time you changed your armor or you changed the plus on your weapon or you leveled up, you would just rub out what you had on that table and you would just write it back in because it made it so much quicker rather than having to work that out at the table. And one of the time. wonderful things about 5e is that it's now there on your character sheet, all in one place. Yeah. One of the things that comes with race choices, before we move on to class choices, etc., mm -hmm. is that after you've chosen where you're going to put your ability scores, because we'll talk about ability scores a little later, Yeah. you often have proficiencies to choose. And this... This is the things that your character is either naturally good at or has spent time before they've become an adventurer learning to do. One of the things I like looking at is that if you look at a commoner, they have tens all across the board. And for most of their life, they've been tending the fields or hunting or gathering or, or brewing or whatever they're doing in relative peace, I suppose. And they've been learning a trade. And these are the skills that are part of your trade. Sorry, not part of your trade, but part of your life. Yeah. The things that you do normally. So maybe you were really good in school, so you have, a, you know, history is something you're proficient in. Also languages. As we said, Wizards is moving away from this prescriptive idea of you is orc, you speak orc, to you are an orc, you're most likely to speak orc, but you might speak dwarvish, or everyone speaks common and you might speak one other language. I often like to go thematic with this rather than anything else. Um, I would often pick Sylvan for a wood elf because they're, in my mind they're more likely to meet fae and woodland creatures. It might also be something like, oh, well, this is a bugbear who also hangs around with orcs, so they know common goblin and orcish, that kind of thing. Well, good example of that, Grelm Grabcandle, mm -hmm. who I had obviously had Gnomish as his sort of intrinsic language, but the extra language that you get was I didn't spot Undercommon on the list, which is obviously deep gnomes tend to come from near the Underdark. Mm -hmm. So you would have Undercommon, which is that's the language of like the Duragar, the um, Drow. The Drow. Thank you. That just slipped my mind. 
Sorry. I was going to say the bad elves, but they're not bad anymore. No. You know, you can choose something that, that in Grelm's case, that would be the thematic choice, which you pointed out, just yeah. because I didn't see it on the list. But then again, there are certain other things that you might choose. Maybe your character is a runaway, and they are escaping a Goliath encampment, so they're known mm. dwarvish. That yeah. kind of thing. So those are things to consider and sometimes there are other weird choices to make as well mm. and we're not going to list all of them but off the top of my head Eladrin for example you can choose whether you're you're a summer spring autumn or winter Eladrin and that just changes your f- one mm. feature which we did go into a little bit more in the Eladrin episode again I, d- I didn't realize there was a newer version of the race so I just chose the one from the DM's handbook yeah um anything else to consider when choosing a race I think ultimately what you think is coolest, when I think of races that have weird things associated with them, the two that I think of are Aracocra, mm-hmm. so you can fly. Be and warned, your DM is m- more than likely going to say no to Aracocra. Yeah. It is a really commonly, quote-unquote, banned uh, race at tables. But again, this is something that you can discuss with your DM, so you can say, I really want an Aracocra, I really want the ability to fly. What you can do is, if you're having an open discussion with your DM, you can both agree that, you know, you can put limits on it. You can discuss Mm -hmm. the ways that that could be abused and overpowered and agree not to do it. Because if you want to tell a story at a table, and this is probably something that we'll come back to several times, but if you want to tell a good story that involves a character who can fly naturally, and that's something you really want to do, you can agree limits and word of mouth agreements with your dm about things you are and aren't going to do so that you and your dm can then reach a point of saying okay they're not going to be silly with this they're not going to abuse this Mm -hmm. worth pointing out that the most current version of aracocra because i've just looked at it i don't know if this has always been the case only has a flying speed as long as it's wearing light armor or no armor I think D&D Shorts did a, a video on... It feels like it was D&D Shorts on YouTube about that. Apparently it's always been that way. He sort of framed it as it was nerfed. But it's changes that they've made to certain races to bring them a bit more in line with well, things. There's a little bit of terminology there mm-hmm. that I think we should explain. To nerf something, you're making it soft and less damaging. You're making it weaker, Yeah, usually, is how it's perceived. Like a nerf gun dart. Oftentimes, when things are quote-unquote nerfed, they are being removed from overpowered to appropriately powered. Sometimes, and video games get accused of this a lot, especially live service games, sometimes when an ability is nerfed, the developers intend to bring it in line with other abilities. They'll overstep a little, and it'll end up underpowered slightly. Yeah in comparison with other abilities. And some people like to frame that as, oh, this ability got punished because it was too good. But in a lot of cases, you can have a race that is just too powerful. Uh, Sorry, I realized before I said two races, Aracocra is one of them. Tiefling would be the other one because you have things like Hellish Rebuke and you have certain spells that you get as your character levels up to reflect the effect that their infernal bloodline has had on them. Yeah. One, one other thing to consider is that racial proficiencies, some races get weapon proficiencies. So for elves, mm. you, this is universal for elves, you have short sword, long sword, short bow, long bow. 
for dwarves, I'm pretty sure it's battle axe, warhammer, hand axe, light hammer. Maybe mace as well. I, I can't so, quite yeah. remember whether it's mace or not. And some certain race, some certain sub-racial choices will get amended ones of those. For instance, the drow have access to hand crossbows, light crossbows, rapiers and scimitars. Aladrin, the DM guide version of Aladrin, have hand crossbows. Really? Yeah. So drow weapon training, by the way, just to uh, correct myself, is rapiers, short swords and hand crossbows. I thought it was light crossbows as well, or uh, scimitars, but I'm, I'm incorrect there. There's two of the weapons you mentioned there that can be really useful, which we'll have to remember to come back to them when we're talking about inventory, because short swords and rapiers will probably come up in quite a few of our builds because of the traits that those weapons have. Yes. So I think that's everything to do with, with races. It isn't. Is it not? No. Go on, then. There are also sub-races. You can have a little bit more as a treat. <laughs> there are also sub-races, and we've just mentioned them, but let's talk specifically. All right, bye, Frodo. Oh, I didn't realise I was that boring. Thanks, mate. He's just off hunting. You choose elf, and then there are also types of elves. So we have high elf, wood elf, drow... Aladrin, etc. Sea elves and all sorts. Of elves, sea elves, yeah. sea elves as well, man. I really like sea elves. I think they're cool. So often there will be a sub race choice, which is usually just like one little extra feature and a slightly different flavour. Mm. And you follow your heart on that one. That's cool. So class choices. When you pick a class, there are so many things to consider. This mm. is why we're doing an episode on it. <laughs> yeah, because there's a couple of times when I've been going through editing and I've sort of realised that we've had a little conversation where we've skimmed over, like, oh, yeah, of course, because you're choosing wizard, so that means you'll get your yeah. subclass at second and then you can take this and you can do this. And that's going to be great for people who are familiar with D&D terminology. So we're trying to run through a couple mm. of reasons why we get excited about being able to take two levels of wizard or to multi-class in warlock. Yes, you are a good boy, but I yeah. don't want to be licked. And you're so good. Let me see if we can get him in here. and then. Yeah, yeah, he can go in there. Look. So one of the things to consider He's helping. is your class. There are 13 main classes, and I'm going to do this off the top of my head. Artificer, Barbarian, Bard, Cleric, Druid, Fighter, Monk, Paladin, Ranger, Rogue, Sorcerer, Warlock, Wizard. So that's the 13 classes. Mm -hmm. And then each class, at between levels 1 and 3, will be able to choose a subclass. Now, subclass is not actually a real D&D term. Each class has its own naming for its subclasses. So fighters are called martial archetypes, monks are called monastic traditions, clerics have domains, etc. Yeah. Really broadly, off the top of my head... Warlocks, sorcerers, and clerics choose their monastic tradition at level one. Sounds right. And wizards, there are druids. Druids and wizards is level two, and everyone else is level three, which is makes you wonder why those other ones are at level two and level one. But there we go. This sort of thing, back in 3.5, these used to be called uh, prestige classes. Again, with the way 3.5 worked, you would have to. Make sure you got your stats up to a certain point. Make sure you had certain prerequisite feats and things. And then you would be able to take a prestige class like 
assassin for mm-hmm. the rogue you needed I think it was your dexterity or your intelligence up to a certain point and you needed I think it was your you needed your stealth up to a certain point oh, wow, and things okay. like that but it used to be really really fiddly to build your character up to the point where you could take a prestige class whereas now between level one or three you will choose what type of wizard you are and everybody gets that yeah. choice Unless you're using the basic rules, in which case you've you, only you got don't have one. A choice. <laughs> yeah, you've only got one of these paths per class that you can take, and they're usually the most obvious and the most cliche. So, for example, I believe that the warlock is the pact of the fiend, the the yeah. fighter is the champion, and the rogue is the thief. They're the most broadly applicable, and. We're not condemning those classes, by the way. They mm. are absolutely fantastic for beginners because it's usually, hey, we heard you like fighters, so we put more fighter in your fighter so you can fight while you fight. Yeah. Not a resurrected dead mean, but there we go. No, but I think I was saying the other the other week about when uh, my friend came over mm. to play because he'd never played before. Uh, so we made him a barbarian and again I regret not giving him a fighter because with a fighter I've had this argument online it didn't go in a pleasant direction because some people are like oh so you just want somebody to sit there bored with no spells and I'm like no if somebody's never played before and they don't have a good handle on the rules and they just want to be part of the table a fighter is a great way to do that because you are literally just giving them a character where it's I hit them with my sword and they can join in they can occasionally roll a crit and things like that if you sit somebody down and go right I've built you an Aracocra assassin and you have to do this 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 and this to get the best out of the character that's fun for people who like challenge builds that can be great fun for mm-hmm. a lot of people for other people who are new to D particularly they will just stare at a big list of spells and not know how to get the best out of them which is why i think sorcerer is sometimes better than wizard for newbies I kind of feel like that, yeah. Once once you get your head around how wizards learn spells and what the spell book yeah, is yeah. and stuff like that, I think it's a more flexible spellcaster, but I think it can be a bit more fiddly than a by, sorcerer. By the way, I do know a lot of people online who think, no, actually, wizard is more simple because these are your spells, you pick up a spell, you add it to the book. And for some people, that's more logical mm. that they can, and that they go, well, these are my spells, and these are the ones I take, and these are the ones I have in my brain. And when when you explain the spell slot system, is these are the spells you have memorized. For some yeah. people, that really works. So I'm not saying that you should never give someone wizard as their first character, especially mm. if they want to play a wizard. If someone yeah. wants to play a specific class, let them. But mm. maybe guide them to be like, okay, this is your main feature. This is mm. how to get that feature all the time or to be doing that feature more often. Yeah, I mean, one one of the things that I thought that I, I wanted to do in this episode is if you're in a situation where you've got somebody who comes to you and says, I want to play D&D and you have no idea like what to, to help them build as a character. Mm. The person that I was introducing to D&D, the first thing that I asked is, do you want to be a guy who runs around with a sword hitting things? Do you want to be somebody who helps the rest of the team by supporting them? Or do you want to be somebody who has spells and clever tricks and things like that? 
And then once you've asked those three questions, you can then narrow down what mm -hmm. class would be best for them. I sometimes think a lot of characters in a lot of campaigns would do well with a warlock now that in previous editions of D&D, &D, warlock and paladin were the hybrids, melee spellcaster mm -hmm. classes. They mirrored each other in the sense that you used to have to be good to be a paladin and you used to have to be evil to be a warlock. Now that they've taken away that fluff restriction and you can be a good warlock. And a bad paladin. Yeah, and a bad paladin. You know, now that they've taken that restriction away, I think there's a lot of people that would do really well as a warlock because you've got a bit of armor. Yep. You've got a couple of useful weapons you can take. You've got a couple of damage spells. So you've got a variable character who can sit back and cast uh, Eldritch Blast or cantrips and things like that. They can also get into the fray if they need to. It's, it's not optimal for them to do that, no. but they've got the toolkit to do that occasionally. I, I think, yes. And if you, the listener at home, you might not be at home, you might be in the car, but if you, the listener, are thinking, what I really want to be is, I want to kind of be Obi-Wan Kenobi but I want an axe. Talk to your DM. And as a DM, I'm going to say this, oftentimes your players will come up to you and say, oh, I've had this idea. And you, your heart starts to sink a little <laughs> as you think, oh God, either I'm going to have to say, no, you can't do that because that's, that's overpowered or that's not possible with the current rules or this or that. And, you know, but if you work with your DM, you can often sort of temper expectations slightly and... Mm often say, like, hey, if you really want a pet, why mm. instead of playing a Beastmaster, why don't you play a Drake Warden so that you've got a dragon pet? Or be an, uh, an uh, Battlesmith Artificer so mm. that you can have a, a Robo pet. And if they go, no, I really just want a pet, you go, well, I'll just give you a squirrel. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the thing is, uh, one of the agreements that my wife made when she was DMing a while ago, yeah. I think I would describe it as the rules for non-combat pets from Diablo, which is they don't get involved in combat they don't get involved in skill checks and the counter to that is enemies will never target that pet you know kind of like sprinkle in critical role sprinkle was just there for flair so even when they spent eight hours underwater it was kind of like well we just gloss over the fact that sprinkle was you know and again they came up with an in-story explanation for it later but mm. you know you just kind of gloss over that pet being there because if, if players want a pet you know if somebody wants a rabbit and it's not going to affect the storyline that much just let them have a rabbit right. and i mean all they're going to do is what do you think mr fluffy kins and it's not going to say anything mm. so <laughs> yeah apart from how fluffy ears. yeah if they start using it to say my rabbit is going to give me advantage in combat by tugging on its trouser leg or anything, then it logically makes sense that that fighter would turn around and put a sword through the rabbit, wouldn't yeah. they? If they start using it in combat or they start using it to gain an advantage as a DM, you can then go, all right, hang on, we need to take this back a step. And we need to talk about it. Yeah, we need to talk about it, which is talking about it is the important thing. Uh, just as a little teeny-weeny aside... There are some rules in Tasha's Cauldron of Bullshit which are called uh, sidekicks. There are rules for sidekicks. One yeah. of the things that you can do is the, the rules for sidekicks are fully fleshed out. And if you adopt a wolf into the party, there are rules for it levelling up with you mm. and gaining experience and everything else. Or Gobbo the Goblin. Or Gobbo the you, Goblin, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there are rules for that, but those are all optional rules. Sidekicks is an optional rule as well. Another thing is, this actually says this in the sidekick rules, so I'm glad I looked it up now. 
it's also a fantastic way of introducing someone to D&D because it's a really, really stripped-down version of the character. And there are only three classes. Okay. Expert, Spellcaster, Warrior. That's it. For Cyclics. They never have a subclass. It's super, super streamlined. So if you want... If you want to be, you know, like, oh, my friend Bill wants to come... I don't know Bill. But my friend Bill wants to come to D&D. Can we make him a sidekick? Mm. He just wants to be... You know, he can even just be the dog. <laughs> or whatever. Um, we could put you in there, Frodo, couldn't we, buddy? We could do. You can go, okay, we're all level five. Here's a level five sidekick. There are very, very few options. This is mm. what you're going to do. And that person can understand the, at the table what everyone else is doing, ask questions without feeling like an idiot because they don't know how to play their character. And even if you are being the nicest DM in the world, and even if you have a really lovely table, you will still feel like an idiot if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And that's part of being a human. Yeah. And it is your role as table mates and mm. as DM to try and alleviate those feelings as much as possible. Which, when we were talking about subclasses before for the fighter, two examples of that, you've got the champion which mostly adds passive bonuses. You crit on a 19 or 20 is pretty much it. It, it adds sort of things that happen anyway to your character mm -hmm. rather than something like the Battlemaster, which is active abilities you have to choose to do in combat and you have to, to know how they work, you have to roll for them, and then you have to say, I am applying it in this way. Whereas with like the champion fighter, it can be very simple because you could, you know, your actions then are limited to, I'm gonna attack them. Mm -hmm. Whereas with something like a battle master, you have to, you know, pull a Liam O'Brien and say like, right, I'm going to switch places with that person, which adds this much to their armor class for this yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm going to use like my bonus attack to two handed attack this person. And it's a level of complexity, which is fun. I would say for most D&D &D players having that, ooh, I have this ability and I can use it in this way. Well, but for somebody who it's their first session and they don't even really understand the system that is li that lies behind rolling a d20. Yeah, absolutely. Having a sheet full of, you have this, 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 and this, that can be quite intimidating. So let's take my partner as an example. So okay. my partner had never played D&D &D before. I asked, would you play D&D &D with me? Because I really want to get involved. And we played for a few sessions and my partner was like, so I just roll the dice and then I add this number. I don't know if you really remember this. And now my partner's going, right, okay, we're going to sneak up on them, get a, get a surprise round, yeah. send in the mechanical rat. He can soak up the damage. Everyone else can flank. And it's only because my partner played a moon druid where, where she went, oh, I don't know what to do with my spells. I said, just turn into a bear. And she's like, yeah, I'll turn into a bear and eat it. and uh, Or, or direwolf, I think. That became the meme, wasn't it? Like, finishing every combat with her just ripping the opponent's head, head off. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying the, the moon druid is the best starting class. It's just that that's the thing she wanted to play. It gives you a lot of flexibility. It does. But for Katie, well, you cast a spell, sweetheart, that you still think about, and then you turn into a wolf. For my partner, that was cool. So I've got my spells, and I'm a wolf. What do I do as a wolf? I bite things. And that was immediately understandable enough to get her into the game, roughly. Like, my partner will go, what, proficiency bonus? Why does that go up? What What's happening? Mm. And it's not that she's stupid. It's just that 
it's a passive thing in the background that doesn't yeah. really matter to, as much to her. Proficiency bonus applies to some abilities, some skills, and mm-hmm. it reflects your character will be better at things as they level up. So, um, often you get things with your class choices. Bards and rogues, this will be expertise and extra proficiencies. With some subclasses, you will have fighting styles, which add a little bit of extra flavour to your ability to fight. Mm. It might be extra spells known. And these are all extra little things that enable you to feel more like that character. Even when Simon and I are discussing a subclass, like the Eldritch Knight last week, and even when Simon's saying, I think it's suboptimal, and even when I'm saying, yeah, but if you do it this way, which is still me saying it might be more of an advanced build. You should play the character that you want to play. Yeah. And if you have a good DM, they will find ways of making those abilities that Mm. at most tables might not be so great work for your table. I think that was why I was making the suggestion before about when you ask a new player what they want to play, asking them, do you want a character who has a couple of spells and is all right at me- do you want a character who can do a little bit of both mm. do you want a character who casts spells or do you want a character who's just like big guy with a sword mm-hmm. and then once you've asked that you can narrow them down and say so this big guy with a sword does it have to be a sword would you do you want an axe or a huge do you th- who do you think is cooler a knight or conan <laughs> and then if they clearly go oh conan then it's like right barbarian mm. And sometimes it can be, if you were going to play a fictional character, who would you want to be? Mm. And the answer is either going to, probably going to be Batman or Ezio from Assassin's Creed, uh, in my case. <laughs> but if you can get like a rough kind of flavour from someone of a character, then that, that can help you make your class choices. Yeah. I think we'll break there. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. It's a good point. We've finished class. And then we can talk about background, and we can talk about equipment and things, because that's part of that's the next part. Yeah, we'll do that. Let's have a little drinkies. Have a little break. Have a little drink. Okay, come on, boy. Come on, buddy. We're going to cut in from here, and we're going to be giggling, and nobody knows what we said. No, no. So background. Background. As we return, we will come to the background. I think background leads in quite nicely from class. Yeah. Because as you were saying about going back and forwards with like race and class choices and stuff, mm-hmm. there's a couple of characters that I've built where I've sort of been umming and eyeing over the race and class choices, mm-hmm. which again is the good thing about the way we build here is you don't have a choice on them. <laughs> no. Or the only thing you get to choose is like the proficiencies if you get yeah, 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 yeah. the subclass and things like that. No, we don't get a choice of subclass. No, uh, what I meant, that was me thinking multi-class. Oh, Sometimes right, 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 right. yeah, yes, 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 yes. We'll come to multi-classing afterwards, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But when I'm building for my own character, sometimes I, I will build in a certain way, or I will have an idea for a thing that I'm doing. The College of Creation bard that we were saying about, that character did not come together until I went to background and I selected pirate, and I thought, right, everything else about this is now pirate. Yeah, yeah. So that can be a big thing for like the character theme. And this is something that's, it was literally just a box that you wrote in in 3.5. I don't know how it worked in fourth, but in 3.5, it was literally just a box where you wrote the background, and I don't think you really got any bonuses or anything no, for no. it. 
Uh, I think there might have been some of them that gave you a little bit of a skill bonus. But in 5th edition, because it's more of a storytelling version, it really does exemplify that thing in the background of this is your background, this is the things you grew up doing, this is kind of what your character was before, before the first session starts. Uh, there's a great story that Monty of the Dungeon Dudes tells, and he says one time he had this player who was like, yeah, my backstory is raised by angels, fought demons all my life, kicked Zariel in the face, <laughs> and now I've landed on now I've landed on Earth, Earth or Faerun or whatever, and I'm here to exact revenge on Orcus. And he says, you're level one. <laughs> you should be telling me why you're no longer picking potatoes. <laughs> and I think there's a uh, a tendency for us to get really carried away with, and then I did this epic thing and did this epic mm. thing. No, you're about to do the epic thing. That's yeah, the point of the game. The 12-page backstory thing. There is a way of making a 12-page backstory work, especially if you're building for higher levels. Mm. A 12-page backstory actually becomes kind of useful. Yeah, for you to have a rough direction of where, where your character's going to, coming from, etc. Yeah, an example of this, Perdition, a character that I did who is a Battlemaster fighter. The way that I did his backstory, his sort of from level one backstory is essentially Ron Springer. He has left his village to get experience of the world for a year and then come back to his village. So that's why he's off out there. We generated the character at level three, so he already had the Battlemaster thing. And the, the thing that I chose for that was he fell in with a group of mercenaries for a while. But then he didn't like the things that the mercenaries were doing. So he just left the company. Mm. And that explains why he's got the military training. That explains why he sort of specialised as a fighter. Because as well, he was a tiefling. So there were in his the village that he grew up in, it was nobody really knew what a tiefling was, but nobody was really bothered by it. <laughs> so when he got out into the world, it was kind of he he was surprised that it was a thing that people judged him based on. Yeah, yeah. And so because of that, he kind of fell in with mercenaries who were like, "Oh, big scary tiefling, we'll have him." And then he kind of realized, "I don't like these people," yeah. and then left. <laughs> and that was the point at which encountered the other characters, characters. That, we, that we were playing with. Yeah. So, just uh, I'm going to take Acolyte as the first background that appears in the PHB and just look at the features. So you gain two skill proficiencies. An Acolyte is uh, someone who has spent their life in the service of a temple to a specific god or pantheon of gods. Their skill proficiencies include religion and insight. So you, you are given a couple of proficiencies as part of your background that exemplify the role you would have been in. Um, I think a lot of the skills as well are kind of, you look at the name of them and it's kind of self-explanatory what that is, like stealth, hiding, yeah. perception, perceive. The The biggest challenge seems that there's a lot of skill checks that DMs will, and I don't blame any DM that, that ums and ahs over this, because it is a big choice, is when you have somebody who's saying, I want to see what's going on, and you think, oh, is that going to be a perception check or is that going to be an investigation check? check? Yeah. There's a lot of grey area between those two checks. And also, this is not the podcast for that. I will talk about that another time. We okay. can do a DM one. I will not talk about it here. A DM one would be really good. Yes, it would be. Um, <laughs> the Acolyte also comes with uh, t two languages. And that's to um, kind of show, oh, here's this character. They've been providing succor and comfort for many people. They've picked up extra languages as they've gone along. I mean, if they're an acolyte, they may well have learned something like, you know, the in-universe equivalent of Latin for their holy scriptures mm. or something like yeah. that. Then there is some equipment that's given to you. It's usually 
not the most useful equipment in the world, but it's it's fun flavour. For example, the acolyte gets a holy symbol, a prayer book or prayer wheel, five sticks of incense, uh, vestments, a set of common clothes, and a pouch containing 15 gold pieces. Some of them you can go for functionality, like there's some backgrounds. I think there's a criminal or a thief or something where you get thieves' tools. It gives you... a a set of thief tools as a starting there's some of them entertainer gives you uh, the disguise kit and two costumes so if you have a class that has proficiency in uh, using a disguise kit it means you you have that in your inventory when you start you don't need to then buy it with your starting gold or you know have it as an ability you can do but not have the equipment for it and the uh, other thing it's that... urchin background oh, gives you okay. proficiency with Disguise kit and thieves tools. Sorry, my brain fell out there, everyone. There's so many to remember, and the more books you buy access to on D&D Beyond, or physically, the more books you have, the more options there are to look at. Or if you're Steve, both, which is why I have no money. Because Jeremy Crawford's got it all. That's fine. Nobody has any money at the moment. That's true. Well, um, yeah, (laughs) that's actually true. Yeah. Usually, there is a feature that comes with your preferred background. In the case of the Acolyte, it is Shelter of the Faithful. And it very broadly says you can get shelter at a place of worship as someone who also worships. And it suggests things also like you might have ties to a specific temple dedicated to your chosen deity. And it's it's more of a DM prompt, I suppose. Like, it's to remind the DM that this is a game of imagination, and yeah. that if someone says, "Originally, I used to work in a, co- uh, you know, work in a convent or something like that." Oh well, you find this church, and you can go in there and say, "Hey, can you put me up for the night? I'm happy to provide some services for the church. You know, do some cleaning mm. or preparation of holy materials." If, if we're being a little bit more imaginative, one of the funniest uses that I've seen of uh, backstory was in the. Tiny Tina's Wonderland role play that they did for Critical Role Mm. where Ashley Birch was DMing and they decided that if Eaton Wadaway every time he brought up his backstory the role play system they were using has like points you can use when you when you fail a role so you know if you fail a role but it's important to your character you have these points built up in the background that you can add to the role to just kind of make up for a bad dice roll if you're like oh but this would be really important to my character Mm -hmm. kind of thing so they they did that they said he would get these extra points every time he brought his backstory up but he just every couple of seconds he was like oh this reminds me of when i was at such and such school and it, (laughs) it, it got to the point where it just became ridiculous the amount that he was bringing up his backstory to get these points yeah that's great but fifth edition it's more about the storytelling side so the backstory I really, really like the 5th edition backstory and I think it really adds a lot to Mm -hmm. the flavour of the character that you're building. A lot of people will just ignore it because they just want a dungeon run and you can do that in 5th edition. It's possible to do that, but Mm -hmm. I personally think you can have so much more fun if you've got a good backstory to your character. Absolutely, Grelm, for example the trick to him was his backstory and that was what fit everything together look if you want me to kill off your monk so that you can no, bring ground grab candle in please you please just have to let kill. me know please don't kill bodrum <laughs> you just let me know boy um you will also get some suggested characteristics i'm going to highlight the word suggested right yes you are of course able to change these 
So, if we're going to look through Acolyte, just as an example, and we've got the personality traits. As a side note, yeah. one thing that I really like about this is it suggests if you can't, you can pick them yourself or it gives you a dice you can roll. Mm -hmm. So if you genuinely don't know and you just want to completely randomly generate a character with these traits, I believe D&D Beyond will roll these traits for you. It does, it does. You can add, If it you doesn't, can you can just sit there with a the dice and you can roll them yourself and come up with a completely random personality traits for your character. And as Steve is about to read, the different things that you can get from it are so varied. You know, you can have an urchin character who... This is something you'd want to approach in a session zero, whether you want to talk about with the other characters. But you can have a character who grew up from, like, an abusive background, mm -hmm. and that's affected who they are. You can have a character who is just a kleptomaniac. Yeah. And that's the huge variety that you can have with these backstories. So I am going to read out personality traits for an acolyte. Number one, I idolise a particular hero of my faith and constantly refer to that person's deeds and example. Two. I can find common ground between the fiercest enemies, empathising with them and always working toward peace. So within this, you could have this on the same character, by the way, because mm. if you choose two personality yeah, traits. Yeah, choose two. But if you were to choose one of those two, you could have a character who is like, okay, the hero of my faith went out and kicked a dragon in the tits and constantly banging on about, yes, but when this guy kicked a dragon in the tits, this is what happened and he was a great hero. And then at the mm. same time, you can also have someone who with I can find common ground between the fiercest enemies empathising with them and always working toward peace you might have someone who wants to broker these two people to talk to each other uh, and instead of constantly seeking out the next cool thing so that they can hold themselves up to their hero is trying to bring these two people together it might even be that if you were bringing these two things together that that particular hero of their faith did in fact bring two people who couldn't get along together so that's an interesting way of adding two personality traits together. I was just looking at Father Pridwin, who yeah. was the one that we did for the the Domains of Dread yeah. uh, campaign that we did. The two that I've got is, I quote or misquote sacred texts and proverbs in almost every situation, and I've spent so long in the temple that I have little practical experience dealing with people in the outside world. Now, I chose that as like... This is a guy who just doesn't know how to deal with people. So <laughs> instead, he quotes bits of scripture and says, ah, as the good book says. But Never clarifying what good book. Well, misquoting as well. So I think just because I'm not very good at thinking things up on the fly, I could have been funnier with that. But it could have been, ah, as the good book says, there is a leaf for every season and for every season a tree. And then, <laughs> you know... <laughs> And, and this is like somebody's mourning their dead pet and you're just like, yeah, yeah, come yeah. up with some rubbish like yeah, that. Yeah. So, if I was choosing the Acolyte background, it would probably be for some sort of religious character. So that could be a cleric, could be a paladin, could in fact be a celestial warlock or a divine soul sorcerer. And if I was going to choose paladin, I probably would take the first one, I idolise a particular hero of my faith. And then I might say, I see omens in every event and action. The gods try to speak to us, we just need to listen. And it might be that my character has gone on a mission because the, the, my paladin has seen a vision. And that be, might be this why this hmm. personality trait is there. Depending on the kind of table you've got, if you want to be serious with it, you can come up with serious uses for this. If you wanted to be silly with that, like seeing 
omens mm. in every situation you you know you have a running joke about like every time someone runs in that one about like it is a it is an omen we are cursed you yeah, know? yeah 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 <laughs> and for a cleric you you picked i quote or misquote and um i spent so long in the temple i have little practical experience dealing with people in the outside world we've just created within seconds we've got a paladin who wants to go out he has had a vision he thinks it's his holy duty to follow in the footsteps of another of another great hero and you've also got Father Pridwin, who is bumbling around, misquoting scripture, and yeah. doesn't know how to talk to people at all. And those are two very different characters, and we're looking at the same background. Ideals, I think, is a little bit more personal. And with personality traits, it's almost kind of a, a broad stroke thing. Like, oh, well, this is kind of how I feel about it. Ideals is, is more like what underpins that character's feelings. So, why don't we roll a d6 each, and... We should have done this in the first place. And discuss what comes up for the ideals. Oh, six. Two. Okay. So we're sticking with Father Pridwin, or you, your cleric, the idea of you playing a cleric and me playing a paladin for the moment. Yeah. So you rolled a two. So your cleric, charity, I always try to help those in need, no matter what the personal cost. So now we're getting the idea that we've just rolled, but you might pick this on purpose. Mm-hmm. We now have the idea that your character, even though he's a bumbling fool and can't quite get the scripture quite right, wow, quite right, is a good person who wants to do good. I mean, you say paladin. I do have a dwarven paladin. Oh, right. Grigory Whitehammer, who I decided the backstory for this was he was... I know somebody homebrewed uh, an oath of the people, but I decided to go oath of vengeance against capitalism for <laughs> this paladin so with that again charity i always try to help those in need no matter the personal cost but that's more of a sort of that's a trotskyist idealized version of socialism yeah yeah sort of thing and so mine was six so Mm. my paladin i've got in my head aspiration i seek to prove myself worthy of my god's favor by matching our actions against his or her teachings so this is actually fits really well with what we said before about yeah. about um, them hero worshipping someone, you know, like, what better way to prove that you're a good person or or worthy of um, your god's power than by emulating that which came before. Yeah. Okay, uh, should we do one for bonds? But is it a d6? It's a d6. It it's a d6, a d6 for everything except personality traits, because you picked okay. two. Ooh. Both rolled one. Oh, we both rolled one? Yep. I would die to recover an ancient relic of my faith that was lost long ago. Mm. Now, we've had different things so far, but for my paladin, this might actually be to find a lost relic of that hero and how important that would be to him to show how much he's emulating that example. And if you were to take it in a different direction, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but if you were to take that in a different direction for your cleric, what could you do there? I think it could be... I think this is probably more like a cloistered scholar background. But, um, you know, it could be the thing that they've been studying or the thing that they've been learning about while they've been doing this sort of sheltered religious study or something. It could be that they've sort of... If they've been an acolyte and they've been copying out these religious texts or something, if they've copied out, like, two or three books, they might have just started to piece through together in their head. Well, hang on, all of these books are saying that this relic was lost in this area. Why has no one gone to get it? Yeah, why is nobody... And then they sort of check with the leader of their faith, and then the leader of their faith goes, yeah, why has no... All right, you go... (laughs) You do it. you, You head out and see if you can find it. Now, flaws. When I first started playing D&D 5e I really struggled to add flaws to my character and 
now I'm quite happy to admit that Aaron is a deeply, deeply flawed character who is quite convinced of his own superiority. But sometimes it's you look through the list and you go, well, I don't want them to be that much of an asshole. Yeah, so some of the flaws are things that you just think, that would be unpleasant to play. Yeah, sometimes though that can give you the best moments. So let's roll a d6 for this. So I've got, I judge others harshly and myself even more severely. Now, in terms of the backstory that, you know, my cleric would have, that would mean, you know, they, they don't really trust the other people that they're with. I mean, if you wanted to take this in a slightly more macabre direction, maybe that could be them, you know, self-flagellating or something afterwards. Yeah, you could. You could have I'm, somebody... I mean, that's particularly dark. I do apologise. But... No, no, but I mean, you, you definitely... If you're going with an acolyte background, that's on the table. Anything that people who've come from a religious upbringing would do, there you may choose to go with that. Uh, again... Session zero safety check, you know, check with everybody yeah, at the yes, table absolutely. if if everybody's okay with, with self-harm being mentioned as a topic. But if everybody in the table is, is clear with that, that could be a thing where either if everybody is on the same page about it, you could treat it as a joke. If there's somebody who doesn't want it treated as a joke, you could have it as a serious issue where everybody's trying to stop them. Or, you know, keep an eye on them so that they don't do it. Uh, if it's something that you don't want to come up at a table, then just re-roll it or pick something else. Or, if you really want to have fun with it, it's the monks from Monty Python and the Holy Grail when they yes. smack themselves in the face, <laughs> you know, as penance. Or, again, the other option for all of this is, if you've got a better idea, discuss it with your DM. You don't have, have to, to have no. something off the list. Even... D&D Beyond, as inflexible as it can be, it lets you just type in your own. Yes. When you click add, it just adds that text to the box. But you can just go into the box and you can edit yourself. Absolutely. Uh, Cesare, one of his things was completely custom written. Right. Because I couldn't find... The one the, you wanted. I couldn't find the one that I want. I couldn't find anything that fit. Have a look and see what his was. <laughs> dead. Absolutely dead. Yeah, his was Bond's I will get revenge on the evil forces that destroyed my reputation within court and ruined my livelihood because he was convinced that his yeah. wild magic was a curse that had been inflicted on him rather than that it was just part of his sort of source of power. But he was absolutely convinced that he had been cursed and he was going to find out who had cursed him and overcome the curse. So I rolled a five which for the acolyte is, I am suspicious of strangers and expect the worst of them. So maybe this guy, I've chosen a guy, it could be a woman, they are they're out on a sacred mission to go and get back this lost artefact, it's going to be awesome, I'm going to be favoured by my god, and along the way they're just turning out going, well, you're not holy, get away from me. Mm. And that actually creates a really interesting conflict. Especially when we talk about conflict and character conflict, there is a difference between wandering into your D&D game and being as disruptive as you possibly can and playing to an ideal bond or flaw. And so for this guy to be suspicious of strangers, I don't necessarily think he's wandering up to every single person in the pub and going, are you a sinner? Are you yeah. a sinner? Or anything like that. But if someone's like, I can help you get there, he'd be go, yeah, and what's your ulterior motive in all this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's different ways of playing it. So, just to summarise from this, not only have we picked two different classes and seen how different sets of personality traits can work for them, and not only have we looked at how the same personality trait can be looked at differently, and not only have we looked at how you can have um, 
different interpretations of, of these. We're also saying you can even take one of these in two entirely different directions. Yeah. And sometimes that flexibility is really, really difficult mm. for people because you end up with option paralysis, like the bloody aberrant mind sorcerer. <laughs> and I've said before, I think, that I am a support worker for people with autism. And I introduced one of the people I support to Dungeons and & Dragons. And this person really struggles with being imaginative. Imagination's not easy for them. For some autistic people, imagination is really easy for them and for others, not so much. So these prompts were really interesting for me to observe because I'd go, well, why would they be suspicious of strangers? And she went, well, maybe they had a bad experience with a stranger. Mm. And suddenly that became a whole part of this character's story that they had a bad experience yeah. with a stranger or or what her, her particular thing was. But I'm just mm. giving an example. One thing that I just wanted to say about the, the background is... The thing that surprised me and the thing that I really liked about it when I first started looking at 5th edition, because I got back into 5th edition because my wife and I started watching Critical Role. And when we first got into Critical Role, we didn't know anything about the construction of the, the backgrounds or anything like that. And so we were just watching it thinking, wow, they've all come up with these really complex, interesting characters. And then the more I started to read about the backstory system, the more I started to read things like, oh, okay, so this person has chosen this background and that's why they have mm -hmm. this proficiency. And you can see the technical construction of it, but the thing that I really loved was when I started to get into creating characters myself and looking at the rule set myself was thinking, there is such a huge prompt system that they mm -hmm. have built in. So that if you think, I want to play a paladin, but you don't know why, and you're going to be playing with a table of people who have backstories or things like that. If you've no idea how to put that together, it gives you this huge prompt system. And the best thing about it as well is if you put together a backstory and you roll it and you think, oh, but I don't like this bit, then you just go to your DM and you say, DM, I'm changing my bond to this custom one that I've come up with myself. And, you know, you may have come up with that custom one yourself just because of the stuff you've looked at. And I love how this turns builds into characters. Mm -hmm. So you can have like the race and the class and things like that. And that gives you a set of tools at the table to play with. But I feel like what makes the character is the backstory stuff. One of the things I was just going to bring up there is that sometimes you will go for a background first because you're like, all right, what I really want is someone who used to work as a on a windmill. And then you might think, yeah, so what kind of person works at a windmill? Maybe it was a halfling mm. or maybe it was a human. That's who would be in a windmill. And then you might look through and go, no, what if it was a tiefling? And what if that tiefling, you know, worked at the windmill and the boss was really nasty? Yeah, that would make sense for a yeah. tiefling. So you kind of build the characters you go along. Maybe you're looking at a background and that one background makes more sense than another. Sorry, the background choices for personality traits, ideals, bonds, flaws. So you start to go, I like that one and that person could be like this. And then that's when it becomes a character and not just a mm. set of instructions yeah. written on a sheet. The next thing to get to and I think a, a good chunky discussion to have is ability scores. Yes. Look mm. at that for a segue. Edit out me saying that that's a good segue. I really, really refuse to do that. So, fuck. <laughs> ability scores. Oftentimes, we've, we've talked about primary ability, secondary ability scores, tertiary abilities, bonuses, this, that, and the other. And I'd kind of like to 
explain that for people at home who don't understand why. Primary scores are the score that you want the highest. And one of the reasons that we use standard array, which in the PHB, there are several ways of rolling for stats. One is point by, which you prefer. I tend to prefer, but I think for the purposes of this podcast, I would get really shitty and cheesy with it. So standard array is another way of limiting my choices yeah. to funnel it in a good direction. You can roll for your uh, for your scores. The most common way to roll for ability scores is to roll 46 and remove the lowest number. I believe critical roll and a lot of streamed D&D games tend to use that because it's more exciting. And I also believe that critical roll have a lower limit. Yeah, I think they use their 17 own... points. Yeah. So if you, if you don't reach 70 points, you can re-roll. Hmm. And we use standard array, which is a 15, 14, 13, 12, 10, and 8. So your 15, you will choose whether that goes in charisma or intelligence or in strength or in dexterity. Then your 14 will go in... Constitution. One of those stats. Yeah, 14 always goes in constitution. 14 doesn't always go in constitution. It's what yeah. I tend to do with standard array because it makes most sense to so me. So you will choose where the 15 goes. You'll choose where the 14 goes. You choose where the 13 goes. Then whatever racial bonuses you get will go on top of that, and any bonuses you get from feats will go on top of that. When we say primary ability, if we were to go through each class, because there's only 13 of them. I think that's a good idea to go through them. Artificer primary ability. Will tend to be intelligence, because their spells are stronger based on their in- your intelligence bonus. So okay. there's some spells that you will cast on a person and they will make a save against it and the number that they are rolling against is higher depending on what your intelligence is. If you're rolling to hit someone with something like a firebolt, I don't know if artificers get firebolt but that's just the example that's I'm using. If there's one that's got a to hit roll, you will roll and the bonus that you get to your roll to hit them will be higher based on your intelligence. So that's what we tend to mean by your primary stat or yes. something. It's what you probably want highest to be most effective at. In general, you probably want this score to be the highest. Yeah. And we do, in fact, break this a lot of the time on our own show. Yeah. And that can be part of making an interesting character is when, you know, we're running through the stat construction and, you know, Steve says, I haven't put the 15 in this stat. And I'll be like, huh. And then it will become apparent why you haven't. Barbarian. It's going to be strength because the rage abilities that a barbarian has are strength dependent. Mm -hmm. It's possible to build for dexterity, but... You don't actually get much bonus from... Yeah, there's, there's so much you miss out on you are so much better off making either strength or constitution your primary stat as a... So, let's just do primary stats. I think for Barbarian, because the Barbarian class has the rage ability and the... What's the unarmed thing called? Your dex doesn't count towards your unarmed, does it? The bonus that you get to your armor class is only based on your constitution. Dex and con. Oh, okay. That's why I was going to say, for a Barbarian, I would probably put my 15 in Strength, my 14 in Con, and my 13 in Dex. Because then I'm getting the most out of my armor class. So when we say, oh, that's almost a tertiary stat, we mean it's something important, but it's not as important as the other two things. Mm. For Artificer, your secondary stat is almost always going to be Constitution. 
the reason the constitution is important is because constitution affects how much health points you have. Absolutely. And for spellcasters, it also affects your concentration check. So if somebody does damage to you, well, you've got a spell running in the background that uses concentration. They can sort of... The best way that I've heard concentration explained is that you are muttering something under your breath to keep that spell going. So... Yeah, if you're muttering this thing under your breath and then, you know, somebody hits you in your, in the head and you temporarily lose this chant that you're doing in the background, the spell fails because you're not constantly saying this thing to keep it running. So constitution is important for melee classes because it gives you more health points and it's important for spellcasters because it stops your spells getting knocked off. So for artificers, tertiary stat might even be strength or dexterity to help you use weapons or armour, etc, etc. Bard, primary stat? To me, bards are so flexible. It, charisma is going to be important because, again, they cast spells from charisma and they have a lot of fluff abilities that are to do with, like, talking to people. They can take a lot of fluff abilities that are to do with talking to and persuading people and things like that. So I'd say charisma is going to be important for a bard. But again, you can build a dexterity bard. Mm -hmm. I personally wouldn't recommend taking dexterity as your primary stat for a bard. But it can be done. Cleric, primary stat. Cleric is something I'm having trouble with, but with <laughs> the one that we're working on at the moment, because with a cleric, to me, there's two different ways of building a cleric, which is you can build the strength and wisdom based mm -hmm. in which case you've got like a big chunky almost a paladin yes a character or you can build a priest which is almost a wizard who's concentrating more on spell casting and being away from the front lines and things like that so wisdom is going to be important because that's what a lot of your spells are based on and if you're doing a cleric for healing then you're going to want that because you get your wisdom bonus to any healing that you do. Most healing that you do. Most, most of the... I say that because the spell heal is a flat amount. Mm. That's why I'm saying it. Yeah. Druids. Druids, again, they cast from wisdom, don't they? Yep. So their wisdom is going to be important to them. With druids, you can kind of fudge it so that they're dexy rather than constitutiony. And if you're if you're a moon druid which is this particular subclass, and you've turned into a direwolf. You're using the direwolf's constitution score, not yours. So yeah. in a fashion, yours doesn't really matter. Yeah, so it's not that, it's not as important. That's, no. Oh, okay. I know, it, it's weird when you think about it. Yeah, it? no, when, when I said it out loud and pieced it together, yeah, it made sense. Fighter. Fighter. I am going to advocate for Liam O'Brien creating a dex-based fighter <laughs> and creating a fantastic dex-based fighter. Absolutely. I think generally most people, when they think fighter, are going to think big chunky guy in heavy armour and if you've got heavy armour you're going to want strength rather than dexterity it should be pointed out that when we come to multi-classing that I have something to say regarding strength and dex for fighter but I would say that a fighter's primary score is either strength or dex and then definitely constitution after that and I think whether you choose strength or dex is really going to affect the items that you take as well. We alluded to this before, but a lot of weapons have the finesse trait, mm -hmm. which means that you roll to hit things with dexterity rather than with 
strength. with strength, which is what you normally you normally use your proficiency bonus and your strength modifier to hit. to hit things with most weapons. If it has the finesse modifier, you can choose to use dex. dex. Yeah, and can. there's some subclasses, as we've discussed previously, where they have class abilities where you can use a different stat to yes. hit things. Hexblade. Hexblade uses your charisma. Yeah. There are certain spells that you can take that allow you to use... Shillelagh is a cantrip that allows you to use your spellcasting modifier. Never actually specifies which one. But your spellcasting modifier to hit and damage. And it also turns your weapon into a D8 of damage. Because Father Pridwin, I think we did eventually agree that his holy symbol, we could cast it on his holy symbol... And it's a bit of a cheeky thing that you'd have to agree with your DM beforehand, but the idea behind that was you've got your holy symbol in one hand for casting, but if you've already cast Shillelagh on it, it also functions as a D8 club Mm -hmm. that functions as a magic weapon. So he had a shield in one hand and his holy symbol in the other hand, which is a bit of a cheeky way of getting around... Having Warcaster for free, but... Yeah, it's a bit of a cheeky way of getting around a restriction, which is if you're casting spells... You need to either have a holy symbol, if you're a cleric, uh, in your hand to cast, or you need an arcane focus in your hand, or you need a free hand if you are a component pouch-based wizard, for example. Uh, Also, druidic focus for rangers and druids. For those unaware, the component pouch is class agnostic. Mm. It is available to any class to use as a spellcasting focus. The specific ones are specific. Monks. Monk could be either dexterity or wisdom. Because the special abilities of a monk, so things like stunning strike, Mm -hmm. anything that the opposing character is making a saving throw for is going to be Mm wisdom-based. Dexterity, generally you're going to want... Could you build a strength-based monk? You can. And that tone of voice, Simon, as uh, you know... You is, can, but you wouldn't recommend it. There is one very specific build for it that I might one day entertain the idea of talking about on the podcast. Hmm. Basically, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. If okay. you're a turtle, you can be strength-based <laughs> because your AC is set to 17. But otherwise, your dexterity affects your armor class. Your wisdom also affects your, your armor, armor class, class as a monk. So I would say you want kind of... Equal in both reasonably equal between the two uh, a lot of the builds that we've done we've managed to get like 16 we've managed Both. to get like 16 16 in some of the builds that we've done personally i would say dex over wiz but i would put wiz over con in th- this is one of the very very few specifics where i would put wiz over con sorry the secondary characteristic not being con paladin paladin I would think you're always going to want to build for strength and charisma in that, aren't you? Yeah, pretty much. And again, some of the classes you're looking primarily to have... There's just one stat that you concentrate on, Mm -hmm. and then you have your secondary stat behind that. There's some classes that I think you're always going to want, like 50-50 and two stats, and Paladin is one of those where... Unless you're building a very specific paladin and you've chosen spells that don't have saving throws... I would almost always choose spells that don't have saving throws if I was a paladin. But your charisma bonus, what does that affect as a paladin? What it does affect is your aura of protection. Oh, okay. So at 6th level, just to explain, paladins get an aura of protection, which is 10 foot radius. (laughs) 
It goes up to something else, and I think it's 30 feet, but I don't want to promise that. Yeah, EXU Calamity, Luis Carrazzo's character, Mm -hmm. that became a bit of a thing. In The the last session was just him desperately banging on the table and going, are they within 10 foot of me? (laughs) (laughs) You get your aura of protection, and that adds your... Uh, charisma bonus to all your saving throws mm. and I think it even adds it to your charisma saving throws oh okay um, so you like double up and it adds it to your allies as well so yes you do want a high charisma but personally when building for paladin that would be my tertiary stat I would put constitution higher yeah. so that I can keep concentrating on bless bane spirit yeah. shroud if I have it fairy fire hex but generally most people building a paladin yeah. are going to want strength and charisma yeah. equal there is a trick because it wouldn't be our show without mentioning at least one trick if you want you take 13 in strength so that you can be a paladin and then you multi-class one level of Hexblade Warlock, and then everything comes off your Charisma mm. stat. And I think, and then you max your Charisma stat. Because Warlock is near the end, I think after we've finished with all of the classes, we are going to have to talk about Warlock multiclassing. Because it's... <laughs> we'll talk about multiclassing. A, a dip into Warlock can do so much for so many things. Yeah, it can. Yeah. Let's move to Ranger. Okay. Primary stat. I really don't have that much experience with rangers. Well, when we get there, that'll be interesting. You can go strength-based ranger. I prefer to go dex-based. It seems like more dex-based, yeah. Even if you're not doing an archery ranger, Mm -hmm. if you're doing a two-weapon fighting ranger, or even just... Rapier and shield. Yeah. They do get the dueling fighting stats, it's worth it. Yeah. Secondary stat. Secondary stat, they cast from wisdom, don't they? They do. But I would be inclined to go con over whiz. I would go dex, con, whiz in that order. So 15 dex, 14 con, 13 whiz. Rogue, primary stat. I think that's going to be dex. You can build a strength-based rogue. It is possible. Not entirely sure I recommend it, but it is possible. One of the things that I think is interesting about rogues is back in 2nd edition, they used to need intelligence because they used to need that to get more skill points. Because in in 3.5 and in 2nd edition, the more intelligence points you had, the more skill points you had to spend, whereas the skill system has been changed so much that it works off your proficiency bonus and straight off your stats. Whereas it it used to be that you had points that you could distribute in your your skills. And Rogue used to be quite intelligence dependent. But I'd say now, unless you're doing Arcane Trickster, you're not really going to need intelligence as a Rogue. No, you're probably going con secondary stat tertiary stat if you're an arcane trickster intelligence anything else I'd probably go charisma you know bluff my way out of things intimidate people that kind of thing that's more of a gut feeling one as I've said none of these are you have to do it this way it's just Mm. sort of a rough guide for you guys at home I'm just having a look at the skill spread so intelligence is just arcana history investigation nature religion so there's not really any skills that specifically benefit from intelligence. I think there's a lot of players who come from older backgrounds that probably think, oh yeah, rogue, you're going to need intelligence, intelligence. As, as a backup. But unless you're going like uh, investigator rogue, unless you've gone for that one and you've got, you know, you specifically want the intelligence bonus on your investigation stat. Or soul knife. Oh, soul knife rogue, oh, which God. uses psychic. I think you need intelligence yeah. as well. It can't hurt to have intelligence because you're probably going to want to be investigating things and finding out clues. 
yeah. as the rogue. So intelligence is actually really good. Wisdom for perception checks, not a bad shout either. But mm-hmm. really, there is I don't think there's a tertiary stat for, for rogues so much. But yeah, that, that is kind of like an, an all-dex stat because they're stealth. Being yeah. able to hide is a bonus action, and that comes off your stealth stat. So there's an actual in-combat mechanic that's based on that. It's yeah. not just skill checks outside of combat. That's interesting because there hasn't been another class that I've really thought you want to throw it all into one stat. Because even Constitution... Even with Constitution, your role as a rogue is to be not getting hit in the first place. You'd still want your Constitution secondary, though. Well, yeah, because with the way we're building with Standard Array, you've got to choose a 14 for the second stat anyway. But if you were rolling, my, my next highest stat would be Con, always. Something that I'd, I meant to bring up before when we were saying about the point-buy system is uh, if you've heard min-max and you don't know what that means, it's, it's literally when you say, this stat is important, so I'm going to spend all of the points that I possibly can on this stat, and then you have something like intelligence that you set to three or you, four. you lower it as much yeah, as possible. You, you so lower that... it as much as you can, so you've got spare points to put in the one that you're boosting as much as you mm-hmm. can. But with Rogue, you could quite literally just put 16 and then... Tens, tens or twelves for everything else, and probably be all right. Yeah, sorcerer. Sorcerer, you want charisma because that's your primary casting stat. Absolutely. You probably want a bit of dexterity because you're probably going to want mage armor yeah. or I'd whichever put that as a tertiary stat. Whichever there, background, whichever origin, sorry, whichever sorceress origin it is that gives you the dragon skin. Dragon essentially, gi- yeah, essentially gives you the inbuilt. So you're probably going to want a bit of dexterity for that. You're going to want constitution so that you don't fail mm-hmm. your concentration checks, which I just failed. Mm-hmm. Prim- right. Yeah, primary. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not all right, but I'm as all right as I, I will be at the know. moment. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think charisma for that as a Warlock. primary. Warlock. I would say you're going to want an equal spread between charisma and probably dex but possibly strength i know a lot of people who say that i think that's the obvious one and i'm just that's just off the top of my head that's because warlocks get light armor proficiency and there is a theory that one should boost one's ac over boosting one's constitution that's usually what i default to when building a character i usually build dex but there's been a couple of builds that you've done that are strength-based where I've kind of thought, yeah, I see the point in it now. Well, let's carry on with Wizard, and then I want to say something about that. Well, Wizard, obviously intelligence, because that's your, your saving throws, that's your to hit with spells. The Constitution is a second one because you've got such absolutely dire hit points <laughs> as a Wizard anyway. So you do as a Sorcerer, they're both D6. Every bonus you can get to your hit dice is going to... That's the difference between you getting knocked out completely mm-hmm. or, with a big enough spell, getting insta-killed if it hits you with twice your total hit points. points. Yeah, Or an ogre. Splat. Yeah. So, that's, uh, that's informative. I feel as though we're doing a good job of this, Simon. Yeah. Hello. Editing Simon here. Just to let you know, we are splitting this episode into two. Partly because after recording it, we discovered that we'd run to three hours. And also partly because Britain being Britain, Steve has been exposed to COVID, so we won't be able to record next week. So, we hope you've enjoyed this recording. We hope you'll enjoy the second half. Have a lovely weekend, and we'll see you next week. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Built Bard Workshop with myself, Stephen, Simon, and Frodo the Dog. All properties and settings belong to the relevant parties. Produced by Steve and Simon and edited by Simon. Music is Dancing at the Inn by Kevin MacLeod and is available at freepd.com. And remember, respect your elf before you wreck yourself. I'm going to make sure I get the right turn. Sorry, editing Simon. I do apologise for making That's you do right. some work. You're not editing Simon, you're talking Simon. I'm talking Simon at the moment. Wait until editing Simon turns up to take my apology. He hates the both of us. He thinks we're both pricks. <laughs> It's because he's right. <laughs> yeah, he's not wrong. You know, yeah, that's going to end up in the podcast now. Bugger. Yeah.